I thought 2021 would be that year that we would start that recovery process, but I don't believe that anymore. We're experiencing the most disruptive time in the history of healthcare. With this podcast, I'm going to connect you with industry and CRNA thought leaders to help you thrive in these unprecedented times. I'm your host, Randy Moore, CEO of the AANA, and this is the Moving the Needle podcast. Today, I have the distinct honor and privilege of talking with Larry Hornsby. Uh, we talk about a variety of really interesting topics, including entrepreneurship, what it's like to start a business, uh, how difficult it is, the mistakes he's made, how he's learned from that, how other people in the past, other leaders have influenced him and his, on his leadership journey, and what we're seeing in the anesthesia marketplace and predictions for the future. So without further ado, let's get right into it. Well, I have a treat for you today. No other than Larry G. What's what's G stand for in Hornsby? It stands for Goodwin. That was Larry uh, Goodwin. That was my Hornsby. daddy's name. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I've been looking forward to this for a long time. Uh, I've had the pleasure of getting to know Larry a little bit better uh, in recent years, and truly one of the most extraordinary CRNA leaders that I, I've I've encountered. And uh, he's going to go down in the history books. So, <laughs> share a little bit about Larry. He is a uh, you look up entrepreneur in the dictionary, and you'll see Larry G. Hornsby staring at you. I mean the the amount of work that he's done in his lifetime, the number of businesses that he started, he sold some of them, some of them too, uh, very successfully, and the work that he's doing now is quite extraordinary. So I just kind of give you an oversight, uh, overview, I should say. Numerous health-related companies, anesthesia consulting, anesthesia management, billing, uh, he, uh, a staffing company, owns a continuing education seminar company, is now currently uh, the executive vice president and chief strategy officer for Diversified Professionals, which is a CRNA-owned company in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. He's, of course, a past president of the American Association of Nurse Anesthetists and widely, widely regarded as one of the best. Uh, he is a 2013 winner of the Agatha Hodgkins Award for Outstanding Accomplishment. And by the way, that's the biggest award you can get. He's chaired multiple task forces and commissions, has been instrumental in developing reimbursement-related policy for the AANA. And unlike a lot of people who have that kind of resume, he is a really nice guy. And, uh, and to have that level of success and to remain that level, uh, have that level of commitment to the organization is profound. And, and as I said, just an extraordinarily uh, nice guy and, uh, and, and a gentleman. So th- thanks for having me, or thanks for coming, Larry. <laughs> Certainly. Delighted to be here. Yeah. So we were, before we got started, we were talking about what's going on in, in, in the world around us, particularly as it relates to uh, the anesthesia marketplace, which is, which is highly dynamic and it sounds like it's getting more dynamic by the second. What are you seeing out there, Larry? Well, it's very, very interesting, um, Randy. You know, the the uh, the it's it's kind of a combination of some of what I saw back in the '90s when uh, I started my first company in 1991, and uh, you know, we were having a, 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 a there's no other way to put it a shortage of CRNAs at that point, and uh, a, a lot of migration from. Um, from hospital to hospital and from, the, of course, the ambulatory surgery centers were really cranking up. And at that point in my career, if I could bring CRNAs, I could get a contract. That's what was the, the missing component. It really wasn't so much about medical direction or supervision or even money at that point. It was more, 
can you bring people? Because there were facilities that were closing operating rooms for the lack of having CRNAs. And so the dynamics are really very, very impressive right now. Um, we, DPI as a company is, is growing exponentially. Uh, I think that's true of most of the uh, anesthesia management companies right now. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a competitive bid process. Mm-hmm. And so I'm seeing uh, now, it's, it's been going on for a while. This is not new news, but it is big news for us. Uh, I'm seeing a lot of facilities that just five, six, ten years ago would not have considered going with a CRNA only or a CRNA dominant model in their in their hospitals, and now um, that's that's happening pretty reg- regularly. And uh, and of course, most of it is the declining reimbursement, um, increasing salary costs. Increasing benefit costs are all driving uh, the market. And so they're looking, how do you get out from under these sometimes enormous hospital subsidies? And, and the good thing about the CRNA model is, you know, we, we deliver a quality service. We always have. That hasn't changed. Uh, our students are among the best prepared in, in the healthcare industry. A new graduate now comes out with the simulation labs and the DNP programs. They come out; they're some of the brightest of the bright, and uh, it's really it's really a, a, an emerging market, I think, for CRNAs to step up and and take a lead role, um, certainly clinically and professionally. And and that's something I can't say enough about our clinical skills. We we have to maintain the clinical skills and. And, and the autonomy uh, of being able to, to be a full service provider and, and do those regional blocks and do the things that the hospitals and the, uh, the, the facilities need us to do. They need a full service provider. And, and so I think that's really put us in a great position right now to capture at least some of the market share. It won't, it won't all uh, switch to uh, a CRNA only or a CRNA dominant, but the opportunities out there. If you're looking for opportunity, now's the time. That's the you know it's fascinating because I've uh, been able to look at this at this level for a few years now. I mean, and I've have I have the privilege of talking to people like you and and other folks who who have a lot of insight and a lot of impact in anesthesia care. And and it seems as though you know as we discussed before we got started that we thought that maybe this was going to settle down a little bit the churn the disruption but that's not the case and and and, and we have to I have to wonder at least that, you know COVID has accelerated uh, this this movement you know there's a lot of hospitals a lot of health systems that are under significant economic pressure yep. and and that's driving I think a model that is rewarding quality plus cost effectiveness is is is. Do you, what's the end of this? What, what, how, do, how does this, where do you see this going in the next year or two? You know, Randy, if, I'd have to say that's where my crystal ball gets probably the, the, the most cloudy. Uh-huh. I, this looks to me like it's, it's self-perpetuating right now. Um, mm-hmm. Everybody, every facility out there is looking to save money. COVID has, uh, uh, I think, certainly had its toll on the, the economics of healthcare. You know, you look at a facility and, and I, I think a lot of people were surprised at how much of the volume and how much of the, the reimbursement for surgery, surgical services, anesthesia, all those related services was tied to the outpatient market. And, and we legitimately saw 80% of the outpatient market pretty much wiped out during the, the peak time of COVID. 80% in and, and, and a lot of those places, that's your biggest payer mix, your largest payers, your Blue Crosses. And, and so it, it had a huge, huge impact. 
some of those facilities, in fact, I would say probably most of those facilities are yet to recover from that financial hit. Mm-hmm. But the, the volume is certainly coming back. The volume is uh, uh, most places are, are, are working at capacity now. And of course, now we're seeing that um, the uh, competition for CRNAs and for anesthesiologists, and we're seeing that come into play right now. And we're seeing a shift in um, in, a, in a lot of places, uh, I think more geographical than not, we're seeing a shift from W-2 CRNAs to um, 1099 contracting CRNAs and to some degree, a lot more autonomy. I think there's a, I think there's that opportunity now, um, you know, opioid free, the, the, the blocks, the uh, ultrasound guided uh, regional anesthesia. And we've got some really, really strong CRNA practitioners out there. So, you know, I think we're still, in some ways, there's still that proving ground. Mm-hmm. Um, there was just some discussion on social media uh, last week about facilities still questioning, but what do you do when you get in trouble? What do you do if, if the patient goes bad? What do you do if you're if you're there? And of course, we've, we handle it and we've always handled it. And that goes back to even my early days of practice back in the, in the 80s and the 90s. There were CRNAs out there then that were working solo without anesthesiologists. And, um, but, but there's, there's still places where we have that learning curve. And then of course, I think it's incumbent that our educational programs prepare the students um, to the best of their capabilities to be solo providers and independent thinkers, more than anything else, independent thinkers. And if, if you can do that, if you can provide those skills, the entrepreneurial opportunities are there. I mean, it, it, it's, it, it's, it's incumbent to the CRNA to first be a good, good clinician, be excellent at what you do and, and deliver not just good patient care, but outstanding over the top patient care and and the rest of it will follow suit you know it's not always an easy decision to give up a comfort zone and move into a solo practice or a group practice with other crnas and to rely on your ability to bill instead of having a salary and a, and a guaranteed deal so to speak but but the opportunities are there it's just a matter of, of taking control and capturing the moment well, the fact that you you said the word opportunity several times in, in the last sentence or two is, is not lost <laughs> on me, right? And so, and and when we see people who have your level of success is there's the intersection of opportunity with preparation and aptitude, right? And and yes, okay, there's lots of opportunity, but how did you move from that mindset of uh, you know clinical CRNA, which is obviously really important, and to be very good at uh, your clinical skills is 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 an important element of of going after that opportunity, but then having the courage to take risk, right? Because I mean, that's, you know, being an entrepreneur is about calculated risk and who helped you, who influenced you, who mentored you? Where, where, where did you get started? Well, that goes way back. That's a, that's a, a little bit of ancient history here, but, uh, but I, I, I've had, um, I would say in, in the leadership role, let's talk about just leadership traits and characteristics and that sort of thing first before we jump into the business thing. But in my first year of anesthesia school, and I remember um, I was at University of Alabama, Birmingham, and uh, that was a 24-month program at that point in time. Um, it was a baccalaureate program, and which was relatively new, you know, to for a lot of schools to be offering a baccalaureate degree. I, I remember when there were mo- most of my peers were certificate CRNAs. And, uh, and so uh, two of my faculty members insisted 
that we take an, uh, an active role and interest in our state uh, and our national professional associations. And so they insisted that we go to the state meetings and our state association put on two meetings a year. And, um, and, and they were very, very instrumental in creating an interest and desire and sometimes maybe maybe a little bit of, of motivation to, to uh, take an interest in those things. But um, Wanda Marquardt and Diana Quinlan were the two faculty members that, that influenced me the most in my, even in my first year of anesthesia school, when you're just struggling to survive. And we went to a, the first state association meeting. And of course we were required to, to be in the, uh, in the business meeting, don't you know? Mm. And so we were sitting in there in the business meeting and you know how business meetings are, Randy. I mean, some of them are lively and some of them not so much, Yeah. but, um, but we sat through it and survived and we, we got out of the business meeting and we uh, went and had a little bit of a post-mortem, I suppose we should say. And, and Wanda asked me what I thought about the business meeting. And my first comment is, unlike me, um, uh, I am a fairly nice guy most of the time, but, um, but I was a little critical of the president that year because she didn't know parliamentary procedure. And there was a parliamentarian that was in front of the audience whispering in her ear, telling her what to do next for the motion mm-hmm. or, or what to do to call the question and those sorts of things. And so she, uh, you know, she said, well, have you ever had a parliamentary procedure course? And I said, oh, no, of course not. You know, and, and so um, the next week in school, I got that dreaded look at the end of class one day. And Wanda said, uh, Mr. Hornsby, would you see me in my office before you leave? Which oh. is never a good thing. I, mean, <laughs> you know? I had many of those conversations. <laughs> and so I went to her office and she presented me with. Robert's Rules of Order, newly revised, uh-huh. and uh, handed me the book. And she said, you know, she said, uh, if you're going to focus in and pay attention on somebody understanding or not understanding Robert's Rules of Order, I suggest you read this cover to cover. And and she never said, I'm going to give you a test, or if you don't, you're in big trouble or whatever. But but I didn't know that what she was going to do. So I, I read the book, and, and then uh, they took me to Chicago, um, 84 at the annual meeting and uh, Patrick Downey was the president and there were only three of us that could go. And uh, it was me and two other um, guys in my class. And we went, of course, we didn't have any money. We, we actually washed cars. We had car washes to to help (laughs) offset the cost of going. Uh And, uh, and we went and, and I was in the banquet that, uh, that last night of the, of the meeting and Patrick Downey must have had 10 standing ovations. And there was a wow. big battle between uh, AANA and ASA. And there were the infamous downey Modell letters. The president of ASA was Dr. Modell. And Patrick Downey took total control of that audience and was dynamic. And, and I looked at Wanda and Diana sitting at the table and I said, you know, one of these days I might just be the president of AA and I, and of course never had really any idea what it would take to actually be that president. But, um, but I was, uh, I was really influenced. And then, and then I got out after graduating uh, in my first year out of school, I ran for a, a position on the nominating committee for the Alabama association and I won. And so I started my service one year out of school and then worked my way up through the board, became the president, um, set out a year and then came back and ran for president-elect again and did another two-year president-elect president stint and then ran for region seven director. 
and uh, and was elected and and first first time first first you know opportunity to run at a national level now i'm going to do what i would not advise students to do uh, i'm going to tell you i never served on a committee at aana before i was a region 7 director i never had any committee um, activities so I came on the board really um, not really knowing what to expect and, and you know, what the, what the expectations were. And um, I really didn't have, to be perfectly candid, I really didn't have a burning desire to go any further. I mean, my son was born in 1988. My daughter was born in 91. I started a company in 91. Things were really busy at home. And all of a sudden, I'm traveling all over the country and speaking at meetings. And, and then I met this guy. I met the guy that I would say was the mentor of mentors, and that was none other than John Gard. Mm -hmm. And John Gard was um, a phenomenal individual, a phenomenal leader. And uh, and he, the thing that I can tell you is John. I I heard the word enviro uh, enviro vision. What's the Enviro scanning. I heard the term enviro scanning years and years later, and I just kind of laughed to myself and I thought. John Gard invented EnviroScan. Mm. He had a 40,000-foot view. And kind of like the Wanda Marquardt called to the office, uh, one night at the end, it was nearing the end of my first year on the board, and everybody was trying to commit to jockeying if they were going to run for another office, and, and I really had decided that I would not. And John called me. I got that call that said, hey, you, what are you doing? And in John's slow Illinois uh, draw there, he says, how about coming up to the room? Well, John Gard didn't just call you and invite you up to the suite. And so I thought, oh, my God, what's up? There's got to be something going on. And I went up there and John sat down. And of course, he did pour me a Tangeray and tonic, which was uh-huh. his drink. Yeah. And uh, and he poured me a drink and we started talking and he said, well, what are you going to do, you know, going next? And I said, well, I think I'm going to go back home and raise my family and, and work on my business. And John sat down and talked to me about how much the organization had invested in me, how much I had learned since I got there. And it was all true. I, I, I didn't know beans for about national politics when I got there. And, um, and he talked to me about some of the gifts that he thought that I had. And, uh, and he sat there that night and I said, okay, I said, well, I'm not going to give you a yes, but I'll think about it. And then uh, I told him, I said, well, I'll, I'll consider running, but I want to know, are you going to be here with me? Are you going to be, because John was getting in that point where everybody was talking about his future retirement. And uh, he said, yeah, he said, I'll I'll be here with you. He said, I I know I'll be here a few more years. And, um, and so that really knowing that I had Mr. Guard support and, uh, and his mentorship. And I'm going to tell you, Randy, I, I learned so much and I grew, I grew as an individual and I grew as a professional and, uh, John Gard had a gift that I didn't get that just didn't happen. John Gard could remember names and relationships. I struggle with that. That is not my strongest suit. Mm-hmm. And John, I went to a, an American Nurses Association conference with him, and John Gard knew everybody in that room. It was unbelievable. It wasn't you expect that at the AANA meeting, but I didn't expect to go to an American Nurses Association meeting and be introduced to the leadership and everybody that was uh, there by Mr. Gard. So it was, uh, those were the three that really, really made a difference. And, and John continued to have an impact uh, on my personal development and my professional development uh, over the course of my time on the board with him. So, um, 
it was a it was a phenomenal relationship. I've you know there have been so I'm I'm joining the conversation from Park Ridge actually in, in, in a headquarters and there have been several people who've who've occupied this office, uh, re- remarkable leaders for sure. But I, I still I still refer this uh, to this as Mr. Guard's office, yeah. <laughs> and I, I I never lose perspective of that. And uh, it's not uncommon. It's been a while because of COVID. But I, I used to go up to the uh, archives. And there's, there's all kinds of junk art stuff, including right. his diploma, including his performance evaluation. I mean, he was a chief <laughs> CRNA somewhere. And uh, so it's fascinating. And I'm, uh, you know, as a history buff, I'm, I'm, I'm both in awe and inspired yeah. uh, by, by, by John and, and, and the contributions he's made to this organization. Yeah. Tell me about that. You know, you're, you're coming up uh, through state leadership and then you're on the board. Uh, you've decided you wanted to start a family and, you, and, and you're starting a business at the same time. And being a successful business person, uh, you're, you're negotiating with a variety of different folks uh, and inter- interacting with a dura- variety of different uh, professionals. And, and now you're in the senior leadership and ultimately the president of the organization, which has a very aggressive advocacy posture at that time, as, I, as I know. How did, you, how did you juggle all those balls? How, how were you able to keep your business afloat? Uh, and, and, and actually not just afloat, thrive in an environment where you're also the face of the organization and its advocacy objectives? Well, as you know, uh, I was president in, in 2000, 2001, and we were at the peak, kind of at the, the end of the supervision battle, which had been going on for five years. And, um, and it was a very high profile position and there was no straddling the fence. Uh, I like your comment about I'm not anti-anesthesiologist, I'm very pro-CRNA. Right. And I was elected to represent the membership of the AANA. And, and I actually, in my, in my speech um, that was delivered to the, the infamous three-minute talk when I was running for president-elect, I actually told the audience, and I, and I gave them what I thought was a very honest and fair warning, that if they wanted to win this issue, um, they should vote for me. But if they weren't all in and they weren't ready to play to win, I was not their their choice. Mm. And so it became a very hard hitting um, battle. Um, both organizations were breaking the budget uh, in Washington. And we were, Clinton, of course, was the president. Clinton's mother was a CRNA. We were playing that card <laughs> daily. And, uh, you know, the, the ads, we were taking out ads in, in all the major newspapers and uh, and it, it was a hard, a hard fought battle by, by both sides. And, and ultimately we won. Clinton signed it. And, and therefore, an instant in time, we thought all supervision in the country is gone. Clinton, Clinton finally yeah. signed it. Uh, he just signed it a bit late and, and President Bush came in and, and overturned it by executive order. So, but that period of time, uh, my business was growing. And, and we, were, we were growing exponentially. Um, I had a CRNA partner uh, that was very, very instrumental at keeping the business going while I was uh, traveling around the country being the president and, and even my president-elect year. My president-elect year, I was really, really busy as well. But as you might imagine, Randy, the, the CRNAs were, were all for me. The CRNAs supported me. You know, that's one thing I never worried about when we... Uh, when we asked for the CRNAs to make phone calls and send fax messages to the senators and representatives, I never once worried that they wouldn't do it. It would never even cross my mind that, that they wouldn't 
pick up the sword, so to speak, and 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 uh, and, and travel to Washington if necessary. And, and we did a lot of that. We had CRNAs that would get on jets and fly in to talk to key leaders in Washington. But the flip side of that is. I was not very popular with the anesthesiologist community, and uh, they were sending uh, very, very nasty emails, nasty letters. You know, they and I would tell you, uh, and this is the truth: we had a lot of presidents. We had several presidents during that period of time who um, lost their jobs after their presidency. They 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 got they left the, being the ANA president and walked back to into the operating room, only to find that they no longer had a job and they weren't welcome. I would have been one of those had I not owned my own company. So in some regards, um, I was a bit insulated is probably a good word from uh, even though there were there were anesthesiologists that tried to impact my contracts. They tried to turn surgeons against me and and that sort of thing. But um, but, you know, the the service speaks for itself. Yeah. And and we had we provided a great service, not just a good service. We provided a great service. So at the end of the day, yeah, you know, there was a there was a plus. But now the biggest plus of me serving the time on the ANA board and, and at the state board as well was my personal and professional growth, learning how, you know, when you're on a board, that's kind of like being in the boardroom in a hospital. You don't always get what you want. You you get pieces of what you want. There's a give and a take there. Uh, a good president will learn how to work that and how to anticipate it. And you try to bring the naysayers on board to your way of seeing. And you also become a really good listener, a really good listener. You you hear what people are saying and what people are trying to tell you. And when you see really bright people, and we had some really bright people on my board, you see bright people and they, they're not they're not lining up with you. They got, um, they've got some reservations about the direction that you're going in. You really learn to stop and listen and pay attention. And, and I think that carried over more than anything else, my abilities to become a good negotiator. And of course, it didn't hurt that we had negotiation training. Linda Williams put that in her year. We had media training. I had media training every year. And, and of course, we were not just getting media training in a sim lab, we were, we were actually engaging with, uh, mm-hmm. I went live on CNN healthcare, um, I don't know, two or three times and, and was interviewed by, you know, the CNN healthcare, uh, reporters. And, and, and so you, you kind of develop that, um, it's a skill like anything else, you get to be quick on your feet. And, and I think that really, really helped me in the boardroom. Yeah, it's remarkable. It is, it is a crucible of leadership, right? And, and that's where, you know, I talk to folks who, who are interested in, in, in moving into leadership, and, and, uh, and I say, you, know, you get out of it a lot more than you put into it. Absolutely. Uh, so, some days are difficult. Uh, sometimes the politics is a little overwhelming, but at the end of the day, you're going to come out of it a better leader, right? And, and you can apply that to in every area of, of your life. And I think sometimes that's lost on people. You know? And you know, I'm curious, Larry, because we've talked a lot about the success that you had, your, your leadership career at the state and, and at the AANA. When you moved into business, and serious business, right? And you, you, were, you had a company that grew exponentially. What were the skill sets or what, what, what were the knowledge deficits that you had to come to grips with? Ooh, well, <laughs> almost everything from a business standpoint, I, I'm just going to tell you, I, I've said this for years. I've told many audiences during business lectures, 
Um, Larry Hornsby made every mistake there is to make in the book. And I, I, I truly believe this is kind of tongue in cheek. But if I make a new mistake, I think I've got to invent it. And I'm going to call it the Larry mistake, you know, because <laughs> I, I think I, I made them all coming coming up. Um, we never got any business courses. I didn't come from a business family. I, I came from a very, very modest uh, family and uh, we didn't have a lot of money. We didn't. My my daddy worked as a maintenance man in a, in a cotton mill in, in Tallahassee, Alabama, and he worked the night shift. And and so, you know, I, I, I really didn't grow up with even knowing how to use a cash register. So uh, so everything was new to me. But but the two, the two that stand out most to me that it took me years to overcome were finance and uh, IT. And, and the IT is an interesting piece because it was it was growing and changing. And um, and so nobody was really an expert in our office at, at the IT piece. Now you pick up the phone and you call IT 101 and they come up and they make all your troubles vanish. Um, that really wasn't the case then because software was new. It was changing very, very rapidly. And I didn't know how to at first, initially I didn't know how to read a spreadsheet. And then I learned how to read a spreadsheet. But then I didn't really know how to generate a spreadsheet. I didn't know how to set up the codes in a spreadsheet and the calculations in it. I didn't even know how to make a spreadsheet order by by alphabet. So um, you know, it was a that those were the hardest things for me. And and of course, in finance, um, you know, when you get up into the into the big boy level and you're signing million dollar lines of credit, two million dollar lines of credit. Um, the largest one I ever signed was just under eleven million dollars. And um, and those are life changing events. I mean, those are the things that will keep you awake at night. You've kind of got to know that you've you've got your all your bases covered, that you're moving forward. And 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 that was one of the things really and truly that was one of the key components to making the decision to sell the company in 2014 um, was because. All of these big conglomerates were coming in and they had um, financial backing mm. to the tune of billions of dollars of financial backing. And they weren't going out to the mom and pop bank and getting a line of credit and, and funding it and paying it back. They were calling Big Brother and say, hey, I, I need $10 million for this to, for this next startup. So it, it looked to me like um, that was going to really, really upset the apple cart in, ter- in terms of being competitive in the marketplace. So that was one of the key parts of the decision to sell the company. Um, and it, and I still believe it was the correct decision at that time. I've, of course, second-guessed that um, a number of times since then as we've seen shifts in the market. But, you know, we just had not seen, and of course, you know, at the point, healthcare was a little questionable as far as re- were we going to see bundled payments? Were mm-hmm. we going to see uh, even Medicare for all back then? And you know, how would that have impacted us uh, on collections and billing, and and how would that affected the the negotiations in the boardroom? So there were a whole lot of things going on then. But I, I would tell you that now, I, I think by in by a large part of the AANA's uh, successful mitigation of the lack of of business courses. You know, back in the day, Randy, we couldn't even get CE credit for a business course. There was no such thing as CE credit to teach anybody business 101. And and so now we have, you know, seminars, we have webinars, uh, you have all sorts of programs. and, And I think the schools are picking up on that. The schools are including, you know, business as as a as a fundamental part of the curriculum now. So I think our new graduates are coming out with at least 
some exposure to the business world and, and what it's really all about. So you've had a remarkable career uh, of, and I, I'm curious, you've seen a lot of change. Uh, and there's certainly in the last year, there's been an enormous amount of change in our lives. <laughs> uh, an uninvited change, obviously. What have you changed your mind about recently? Well, that's a very interesting question here. And we kind of talked about it a little bit in the opening segment here. But, uh, you know, I was convinced. I, I watched the the numbers shift from our graduates and, and as we made the transition to the DNP program. And, um, and then looking at the baby boomer retirement curve, the baby boomer retirement curve really honestly kind of scared me a little bit because I uh, looked at the number of CRNAs in that age group. Of course, we projected this years and years ago, and, and we knew this was coming, and it wasn't just anesthesia, it was uh, nursing in general. So the, our pool that we pull from was also going to be going through a, a bit of a change. And so I expected that we would see a few years that the market would be a bit difficult. We would have a lot of job openings. We would have a lot of movement, which is not always a bad thing, Randy. I mean, it it does set up an opportunity for salaries to go up and negotiations to take place. And it uh, it does change things in some ways as an advantage, but, but it also creates havoc with uh, working hours with situations for getting your PTO time and being able to to take time away from practice and and so I really really thought I really believe that 2021 would be the year that we would see the marketplace kind of smooth out. I thought we've pretty much run the gamut of of anesthesia acquisition and takeovers. The the big management companies were kind of quietening down. And so I, I thought, well, we'll, uh, we'll see 2021 will be that year that we'll see things smooth out and we'll transition back. And we should have a great supply of new graduates coming out. Um, we should be able to backfill these retiring CRNAs here. And, and I, I thought 2021 would be that year that we would start um, that recovery process. But I don't believe that anymore. It's so dynamic right now. As I said earlier, if you can bring CRNAs right now, you can get a contract. There are places with multiple job openings, 10, 15. I heard one today, a facility that's looking for 20 CRNAs. And, you know, this isn't one of those places where they've had a big walkout. It's just they've they've lost by attrition. Now, we're seeing some some very interesting hourly rates. Uh, there's there. And again, it's kind of geographical. There are areas where CRNAs are still making about the same thing that they've made for the last two or three years. And then there's other places where the CRNA rates um, are going up exponentially. A lot of people, a lot of CRNAs are transitioning from a W-2 employment situation to 1099, which implies a degree of independence, and you you become an independent contractor. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think that's a good thing. I think that'll force people to pay attention to the taxes and to their reimbursement and to uh, running their business and and in even if it's even if it's just their own personal business, it's a one-person company. You know, I I, I see all those things as being very very positive. But I don't know where this is going to go in terms reimbursement's not going up. Reimbursement isn't going to match our salary increases. And that money's got to come from somewhere. Where's that money going to come from? And it either comes out of the hospital and facility subsidy or it comes out of another provider's uh, demise. So um, I I think it's going to be a, a very interesting 
dynamic 2021 is what I think. Yeah. I, and, and from my, from my vantage point, having the privilege of talking to you and, and other folks who, who are looking at this at the hundred thousand foot level, I think you're right, Larry. I think, you know, there is some, there are definitely some challenges coming our way, uh, but there, there's a lot of opportunity uh, for the profession, for the professional association and for nurse anesthetists who are interested in taking advantage of that opportunity. So I, I want to thank you today for, for joining us and sharing just a bit of, of your perspective, uh, your, your experience. And uh, again, it, it's been a real pleasure talking with you. Yes, sir, Andy. Thank you so much for the opportunity. And uh, I hope I get to see you at a live AANA annual meeting very, very soon. Uh, so. Me too. No promises, but yeah, right. we're doing every, we think, everything we can to safely make it happen. Yes, sir. All right. All right. Thank you. Cheers. Thanks again, Larry, for joining us here on Moving the Needle. That was a lot of fun and very interesting conversation, if I don't say so myself. And thank you to the listener for listening in to Moving the Needle. If you like what you're hearing, tell your friends. Share this podcast with anyone you think might be interested in what we're talking about here. And until next time, thank you for joining us on Moving the Needle.